We are smack dab towards the end, I guess, in a series on God's will that's been going on. Somebody said, what are you covering? Like, same thing, same thing. We're covering it for one entire year. So we're (laughs) almost, well, we'll probably hit the end of the year. We're getting close. We have two more weeks to go after today, and we might even combine them. But one thing that's coming up after we finish up, let's take a look real fast at this roadmap right here. These are all the things that we've done. We've covered so much about God's will and decision-making in God's will and We've got a couple topics left. Next week, we're going to start answering those 75 questions that you guys have sent to us, including other questions that you might have. Next week is really a question and answer session on everything we've covered because we've got so many questions, we're going to cover them all at once. And the last week, it's really a request that came from the group to spend a week just talking about prayer. In light of everything we've been talking about, about God's will, it seems like some people have questions about, well... What then do we pray about if so much of God's will is determined by his sovereignty well in advance and is already determined? How are we supposed to pray? And can we pray against that sovereignty? Does it even matter? Maybe we should give it up. So we're going to spend a little bit of time just wrestling with prayer. So it's kind of tacked on to the end of our series because it seems like it makes a lot of sense. And the questions you guys have arose from the God's will series. That's why we're going to go back to prayer. Tonight, we're talking about doing God's will. One of the temptations we have in this group, especially because we like to do it as an open forum, we like to discuss and debate and bring up verses. We are good at wrestling with God's word. I think that's a strength of this group. We can really dig into it. You know, we don't just skim obviously on the surface when you go this many weeks on one topic. We really kind of dig into it and don't let it go until it's done. But we're not so good, let's be honest, about transitioning what we wrestle with, what we learn, what we teach into actual tangible doing, an activity, an action. And one of the challenges I'm laying down for Exodus for myself and for everybody here is that in every series we do that we somehow find a moment, whether it's a night or an activity that's outside of a night, to just focus on translating what we're learning into something that we actually can do. Tonight, my challenge to you is to do something. And I'm going to walk through it. These are kind of random scattered thoughts tonight because it's very hard for me to put my finger on why it is that we as Christians have such a hard time doing things. I'm going to take a stab at it tonight. And I want to just tell you up front, my disclaimer is every one of us is in a different place. So tonight I'm going to make some generalizations and I don't want to offend anyone in those generalizations. You may be doing a lot. You may have other reasons that I don't even hit on that you're not doing something. Maybe the reasons that ring true for me don't ring true for you. But the main point is I want us to translate what we hear into doing something. Because I feel like we're so strong and struggling and learning together. And it's shaping me. One of the things I want to point out is for the last two weeks, Randy's been sitting in the corner peppering me with questions and verses, and they've made me go home and wrestle through more stuff than I was even prepared to do for these talks. And I love that in this group, that I want you to know that the Holy Spirit works in all of us. He's speaking through every single person. And when a hand goes up, a lot of times it's sharpening something that I've thought about already. But you know what? It comes from a different angle, and the Spirit is speaking to us. So tonight, I just want to open up in a word of prayer and invite the Holy Spirit back into this room to be our teacher again through all of our discussions, not just my voice. Let's pray. Lord, our honor is to invite you into this room. You are majestic in this place. You have created a sacred space for us to come and dwell here, Lord, just to learn more about you. Set aside time, Lord, on Sunday nights and just look deeper into what 
you are and who you are. Lord, we often leave this room wondering if we're ever going to fully understand you. And thank you, Lord. That's what makes you God. That we can still struggle and wonder and ask why and question and, and walk out in faith, Lord, knowing that you're still with us, you're still God, and we will never fully understand you. Be in our conversation tonight, prompt our hearts, and Lord, move us to action tonight. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So, I want to make a distinction right up the front, because our series has been discovering God's will. Our series, really, if you want to get down to it, has been asking this, this question. Is there such a thing as an individual will for your life? Is there such a thing as a detailed plan that God has already mapped out that you can discover? And it's that you can discover part that we've really wrestled with. Because we know that God's sovereignty covers everything. But we also know that many of us have believed that there's an individual will for our lives and we've been searching for it, asking, can I know it? How do I know if I'm in the center of God's will? Is there even such a thing? And over the last couple of weeks, we've critiqued it pretty heavily. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've kind of ended up in a place probably as almost a consensus saying, maybe there isn't such a thing as a detailed minute-by-minute plan that we can discover, even if we discovered it. It has nothing to do with doing it. And this is the question I want to start with tonight. Is there a difference between finding it and doing it? I think most of you right away are thinking, well, sure, you first have to know what it is, and then maybe you can do it. But the real issue I want to point out is something that's in us. We long to know what God's will is, but we don't long to do it. There's almost some sort of tension there. There's almost like a feeling like if we just sit around long enough and look for it, maybe we won't actually have to get to doing it. Or there might even be a comfort inside of us that say, well, if I'm not sure, then we like those teachings that say, I'll just sit patiently and wait. But that's not doing anything. You see, to me, finding God's will, trying to figure out a way to make decisions, is looking for direction. Whereas doing God's will is actually doing what he's commanded. Look at it this way. Finding God's will sometimes for us is like a fortune cookie. We want that kind of detail. We want somebody just to break open a daily fortune cookie and say, here's what you should do today. Is that about doing or just about us knowing the direction? We're looking for a philosophy. What about this if it's a road sign? (laughs) I actually found this road sign. I didn't draw this. It really exists. Maybe we're looking for this kind of road sign because we're seeking direction from the Lord. But that still doesn't have anything to do with doing God's will. When someone says, I want to know what your will is, what you're really saying most of the time is, I just want you to tell me which way to go. Just make the decision for me. I'm going to label that as a kind of laziness. Yes, some of us really earnestly want to know what the Lord has for us. But a lot of us want him just to tell us so we don't have to struggle and work through it or use wisdom as we've been talking about in the last few weeks. And more importantly, we're not even worried about doing it. Just want to know, like, tell me a direction to go in. Here's another one. We want certainty in our life, kind of like shaking the magic eight ball and having an answer come up and going, Lord, uh, should I go on the mission trip? And it comes up and goes, it is certain. (laughs) That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a no way out situation where his will is clear. And I just want to call that out again. To me, that's not the same thing as doing God's will. They're two different things. Here's James. James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word 
and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I'm going to read it again. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. He goes on to say, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know, in teaching a lot of students in grad school, I struggle with this all the time. In undergrad, whatever you learn, a lot of us are wondering, like, am I ever going to use this? I don't know. But see, in grad school, everything you're learning is directly relevant to what you're going to be doing when you graduate, because that's the reason you went there. The hardest thing I struggle with my students is sitting there and talking to them and saying, what I'm telling you right now, you need to remember. This is not a course where you take the course, take the exam, forget it, and move on. This is exactly the same kind of thing that James is criticizing here. If all we do is listen to the word, hear what people say, struggle with it, grow a little bit, and then forget about it and move on. We have that temptation in this series. We've been doing God's will for a while. You're like, let's just finish the series and move on. Let's get to the next series. It sounds really exciting, our next series. A number of you said, like, I'm really waiting for that. I'm excited about it too. But like every series we've ever done, we got to go back to it. We can't forget that we did it. We can't forget that we're in the midst of this. All of this struggling that we're doing about figuring out God's will for our lives and how would we figure it out, if there's even a way to figure it out, does us no good if we don't translate it and do something. If we just hear the word of the Lord in any circumstance, whether this series or anything else, and then kind of walk away and forget about it. We're like hitting the reset button every time. We're not growing. We're not maturing. We're not becoming effective for the Lord. That's why James says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Not forgetting is the first part, but the important part is, but doing it. So do what? You guys know when we covered God's moral will, I pulled out a piece of paper and just started writing down just direct commands out of the Bible. God's moral will is abundant. Today I did the same kind of exercise without even looking at the Bible. Just this afternoon I sat down with a piece of paper and said, Lord, if I were to just write down things that I think are your will that you want done, how many of them could I think about in the next five minutes and write them down? I'm just going to take five minutes and write them down. This is what I came up with. They're on the screen. Caring for the poor, visiting those in prison, bringing medicine to the sick, comforting the dying, looking after widows and orphans, feeding on the word, worshiping the Lord, giving to the needy, rescuing victims of abuse and sexual trafficking, sending out missionaries, serving the strength in the local body, telling others about the gospel, mentoring a new believer, seeking accountability for the sins we struggle with the most, befriending the downtrodden, inviting those less fortunate into our homes more than just for a meal. Spending time with the elderly, loving and providing for the needs of the disabled, speaking for those who do not have a voice, defending the defenseless, and seeking justice for those who have no hope, donating and even going as far as actually purchasing clothing for those in need, sending Bibles to believers who have no access to the word, translating ministry resources into other languages, living among unchurched people, investing money for the kingdom purposes, Stewarding the earth and its resources, living in simplicity to further the work of the kingdom throughout our giving.
And then my time was up. So I'd take five minutes to see what I could come up with. That was just me. Your list could be different. But I think you've read the scriptures. You know what God commands. You know what the priorities are in his heart. You may reprioritize this list. You, there's some I'm sure I didn't even put on here that you're thinking, what about that one? What about that one? I think they all belong on here. So when we're trying to say, I want to know what God's will is so that I can do it, well, here it is. Same thing we talked about when we talked about his moral will. It's right here. So what's the problem? This is where I want to get some of your feedback. So think about this question for just a moment. What is it that prevents us from just diving in to do God's will? To do. To jump in and say to do. What is the things that prevents us? Jonathan. I think it's intimidating because we look at all that and we're like, oh, I can't do that. And so we kind of like, well, which God ones do you want me specifically to do? Which ones do you want me to concentrate on? I guess almost as a cop out not to do all of them. Why do you think that if he gave you a specific assignment, it would be less intimidating? Like if he said, okay, you're right, it's a big list, so let's narrow it down to just one that I think you're uniquely wired to do. Why don't you just uh, seek justice for those who have no voice? Does it become less intimidating at that point because God said, that's the one I have picked for you? You're just looking at one thing that's wrong with the world instead of everything. Okay. And by the way, I don't mean to imply that, on, that, you, that we all have to do all of those things. I'm just trying to imply that I think we already kind of know. Yeah. Uh, the number one thing that stands out to me is I, I think selfishness is because I feel like we want to do what we want to do. For me personally, if it came about that I was walking down the road and there was someone hurt, then that would help them. But as far as me going out there and searching for something, that's just not in my, in my mind. You know, I'm sitting there worried about work, worried about music, worried about all this other stuff. But I'm like, oh, okay, cool. But then if, I, if it happens to happen, then I'll do something about it. It's like probably, probably God going like, oh, okay, just making sure you can still do something good, you know? But it's like... <laughs> kind of like a little test? Just right. to like, like see little, if you're still like, alive like spiritually? Little, like, oh, okay, fine. That's great. But I think a lot of it's just selfishness. Is I, no, I don't feel like going out there and doing it today. I don't feel like doing it. I'd rather read a book. I'd rather play a video game. I'd rather write a song, you know? I'd rather do what I want to do instead of what the Lord wants me to do. Okay. I'm going along with that. I think a lot of it is uh, selfishness and not trusting that our time will be reimbursed or that we will have enough time to do the things that we feel important or um, with those that deal with money, that we won't have enough money for things that we feel we need. We don't trust that God will provide us things. Okay. That's a realistic fear. Anyone else? Instant gratification is what we society tells us to be a Christian. I mean, it's not instant. It's not, I mean, anything most things that God is going to give us. It's not that we're going to reap them here. Yeah, we may never see the success here, right? Right. I mean, you may like you may say, hey, I want to be a missionary to Ecuador, and they'll just kill you when you get there, right? But, but I mean, that's happened, right? We've had movies made about that whole situation, and you find that you don't, you don't know what's going to happen. You just, you're the one that, you know, we, don't, we can't define success in that limited, narrow thing, like you said, an instant gratification of our life. Like, Lord, if I do this, then all sorts of great things will happen. Yeah, but maybe not during your lifetime. Jeremy, do you? I think uh, we don't want to face many of the problems that we've created. I think there's a lot of things that we're very comfortable with. I think there's a lot of consumerism and there's a lot of ideas out there that we take advantage of. And when we start, and I'm, I'm speaking about myself, when we start to think about those things and we start to think, wow, you know, just the the numerous places where we've just taken advantage of people as a society, 
Um, and as, as individuals, we, we start to think, well, let's not think about that. You know, we can't change that system. You know, it's already in place. That, 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 that economic structure, it's there. That, that cultural structure, it's there. You know, we put old people away. That's what we do. And we don't think about it. You know? um, so I think, it's, and I think it's a really hard thing um, because it's very easy to see that globally, to see it personally in your own life, and then to really rationalize it away as I can't change it, I can't do anything about it, so I'm just going to keep, you know, I'll keep tithing every so often, um, and, and try, I'll try and deal with it in other places that are much more manageable. So, I like. I think a lot of that rings true with me. Um, I think one of the biggest things is just self entitlement, um, and that goes to everything. I mean, it goes to resources like the idea of this is my time, this is my life, this is my car, this is my this. I mean, anything. It's this deep-rooted self-entitlement. Um, and the scriptures do teach that basically nothing's ours. It's, it's all God's to begin with. You know, and, and I mean, we talked about, you know, in uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount where it talks about, you know, giving your cloak. Well, it's not your cloak anyways to give. So when the person takes your shirt, you give them your cloak because it's not yours. And, um, you know, those are honest. Those are things that are really hard because I consider the clothes I wear mine. Uh, and I don't really want to give them up. And so I think there's a deep-rooted self-entitlement to everything, to, to raising a family and saying, this is my money, this is my hard work that sent my kid to college or, or myself or whoever. And it's deep-rooted in our culture, I think. Yeah. I think a great exercise would be to come into this room one day and have, like, everybody just trade clothes. <laughs> <laughs> just to tweak us all into, into the idea of how much we own our stuff. What Morgan was just referencing about the Sermon on the Mount, I meet with a group of business guys. They're not Christians, but they want to study the wisdom of Jesus. And it's been one of the most challenging things I've done is to sit down with people that are my clients, that are business people who don't really have a frame of reference for Jesus. And we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And when we get to things like, you know, if a man sues you for your cloak or your, your shirt, give him your cloak as well, or, you know, turn the other cheek, or when you give to the needy, do these types of things, you know, they look at it and they go, this is crazy talk. I mean, Jesus, I mean, what was he thinking? Like, no wonder he lost all his followers after this. I mean, this is just nuts. But when you start to explain to somebody, even who doesn't know much about Jesus, that if you knew Jesus' perspective, that we own nothing. Now look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at those same verses from the perspective that we don't own anything. It's not ours to begin with. We're just stewarding it. All of a sudden, it's hard to make a little bit more sense. It's so interesting to watch people grow thinking this would never work in business, it would never work in the real world. It's like, sure, but that's because your world operates on ownership. And the Lord's doesn't. Well, it does, it's just he owns it all. Here's some ideas that I put up just to show you. I think some of you are hitting the distraction factor. I think Ryan hit it too. There's so many things that distract us in this world. Some of them are very good things, but they're still distractions. Our jobs, our families, people that we're in relationship with, even people that we're in community with. Those are positive things. But they still can be distractions from doing God's will. And I'm sure you can think of all the negative distractions. All the consumerism, all the materialism that numbs us in our lives. We're like, in a, like an anesthetic. It's just numbing us to the impact of God's word. I mean, how numb must we be when they're saying 2,500 children die a day? And you're like, uh-huh. Just driving right by that guy with holding the sign. It's putting us to sleep. It's numbing us. That's, that's the only way you can explain it. 
Because you hear a tragedy that happens on American soil, like 10 people die here, or this happened in an accident, or these people died on college campus, and we're a national mourning for a week. But there's all sorts of things going on all over the world that we're just numb to because we're caught up in our own lives and we're distracted. I think we also have no sense of urgency. Most of us, especially, well, maybe all of us, we feel like we've still got life left to live. We have a few goals we've got to finish. Doing the will of God seems to be something we can do when we get everything else straightened out. But there's no deadline. There's nothing urgent about it because we, again, have become numb. It means that we're not feeling the urgency because somehow it doesn't affect us. And I think some of you are just addressing that general lack of desire to do it on our own. Again, this is a generalization, but it applies to me. There's a lot of times where I pick and choose what I want to do and completely ignore other things. And I don't want to be heard as saying we have to do every single thing, but we talked about calling and purpose and those things that you can find in your life that you're going to invest in. You can't just take a shotgun approach and try to hit every single thing. But I don't think that's our problem. Our problem isn't a group where I need to tell us, or anybody else I know, by the way. It's not just us. I mean, talking about to the church as a whole. I don't see us as people that i got to go, hey, slow down. Don't do everything at once. Most of us are in the opposite place. We're not doing anything at all. Kind of waiting to figure out what we're going to do next. So how do we overcome that? Here's just something I'm going to let you think about for a second. We need to constantly think about the end. Maybe it has to be the end of your life. Jesus used this device over and over, making people think about the end. Look at the parables carefully and see how many of them result of something that happens at the end. Parable of the rich fool. God comes back in the end that night when he's not expecting it. Parable of the talents that we've analyzed here a number of times and we'll look at briefly tonight. The master returns. Parable of the ten virgins waiting. Again, another parable about waiting and making sure you're ready for the end. Over and over and over, Christ is reminding us to focus on the end. Keep your eyes on where you're supposed to go. Doesn't Paul say the same thing? I'm reaching for the prize. I'm running for the prize. Like I'm keeping my eyes focused on the end. That keeps the distraction away from us. You've got to readjust every day, not just once in a while. Because the distractions are everywhere. And trust. Trusting God to provide, to take care of us, to give us strength, to guide our steps, work all things for good. That there is a place that's better than this. We gotta trust in that. It's sad to me that so many believers, like we talk to people and we tell them, like, hey, you gotta believe in Jesus. You gotta go to heaven. And none of us wanna go there. We're living for this world. Every priority we have is about this world. I think if you pulled Christians and asked them, how many of them would go today, right now, if Jesus walked in the room and goes, let's go right now, or you could finish out your life, totally up to you. How many of us would go, I'm going now. How many would go right now? That's better than I thought. Most of us would be like, are you sure you don't care? I could stay a little longer? And it won't matter? Like, no demerits? And I'm not going to miss anything? Well, it's eternity, right? Okay, all right, I'm not going to miss anything. It doesn't matter. All right, then, then I'll live this one out a little bit longer. Why? Why? It's all you know. Yeah, I think that's right. It is what we know, and we're afraid to trust to think that what's coming is so much better that we would ditch this in a heartbeat. But we say it with our mouth to people, but a lot of us, including me, 
don't believe it where it counts, right here, where you'd go, yes, I'm there right now. I'd li- see you guys later. Here, you finish the power. I'm leaving. You know, like, I'm going. You guys finish up. I go, like, can, can I? Because I don't think we believe it. When I was in law school, a couple of friends of mine, we took a trip to Catalina on a boat. And we just got out on the water, and we were out about, you know, like half an hour before you realized we didn't bring a compass. But... <laughs> But, I mean, we're only, we're only going to Catalina. I mean, it's not that hard. I mean, you leave the, the, the you know, whatever you call it. I'm not even a boat person, but, man, I, yeah, thank you. I, I was dressed like a boat person. You see me, I had one of those striped shirts, like blue and white striped shirts. They're like, look at Yacht Boy. You know, I had, like, the little boat shoes and the white shirts. I, I was, like, totally into it, you know. I had a little costume just for going on this trip to Catalina. We head out, no compass. But it doesn't matter because you can see Catalina. It's right in front of you. It's like in a, in a small boat, you can make it in like three hours. It was just really like, you know, just cruising over the waves. It was great. We got to Catalina, no problem. Spent the night, had a good time, hung out. It was fun time. You know, the guys from law school. Now it's time to go back to the mainland. So the next day we turn around and we, I mean, come on. It, the mainland's right in front of you. I mean, Catalina's not that far away. So we start going. But see, we don't have a compass. And we're trying to get back to like Huntington Beach. But, like, all we see is this big shoreline. And we're, like, arguing in the boat, like, which one's Huntington Beach? Like, it's that over there because that's the mountain and that's the thing. And, like, you got to realize that when you're coming back, you can hit anywhere from Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, Seal Beach, Long Beach, San Pedro. I mean, there's so many ports. We ended up in Santa Monica, if you know how far off we were off course. Now, we made it to the mainland. It was like, you know, I mean, at the rate we were going and arguing, we probably got to go out into Portland. You know what I mean? It wouldn't matter. <laughs> but we got back. But we were way off course. When I said you got to keep your eyes set on the end, that's what we needed to do. We needed to have a fixed point, if we didn't have a compass, to figure out how we were going to get that boat back to where it belongs. So we had like a three-hour trip back to the mainland and then a three-hour trip along the coast to get back to the harbor to find our truck to get the boat back in. If we had a compass, probably would have been a little bit easier. But we still have to know where we're going and how we're going to get there. What is that compass that we use in Christianity? To me, it's that conversation that you're going to have. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But the point is to avoid all the distraction, to avoid all the wayward wandering, to make sure that you end up where you're supposed to be. You've got to know where you're going and you've got to have a device to get you there. How do we overcome this lack of urgency? I was talking to Julie, who's not here tonight, and she was telling me, in World War II, Americans did something that was kind of cool. They were rationing supplies for the war effort. So we started a campaign in this country to have people plant victory gardens. Victory gardens were a way that average citizens, living even in the suburbs, could find the smallest plot of land, didn't matter how much it was, even their own backyard or their side yard, and plant food. The idea was if you planted some of this food, you didn't have to take as many rations. And some of those rations could go support the troops overseas and it could help to win the war. You could see like these people planting the garden down here look like they're marching off to war with the rakes and shovels. Over there, it says like plant a garden for victory. Being part of this planting effort, you were part of a war effort helping and all you're doing is planting a garden. What was the sense of urgency that made average people living in the suburbs plant victory gardens? And one of the phenomenons, by the way, that's weird about victory gardens is how many people did it. There was a sense of urgency. What was the urgency? 
but we were in a war. There were people dying. And we were trying to find a way to help win that war at any cost, and this was one way. Aren't we in the same kind of situation today, but we're just not aware of it? I think we're in a war for people's salvation. I think we're in a war for people's, like, to to know who Jesus is. I think there's a war going on to keep people alive before they die. I think there's a war going on right now to try to figure out some curious diseases that are wiping out whole continents of people. There is an urgency around us, but we don't let it affect us because we've become numb again. Statistics showed that when the tsunami hit Southeast Asia, giving in the United States went way up. 150,000 people died in one wave. Giving went way up. Okay. 150,000 people die in Africa every month. Isn't there a sense of urgency in that? We need to become a little bit more raw and not numb in understanding the urgency to be able to translate it into doing God's will. There's another practical application of this victory garden that a lot of people are doing. I've been talking to Morgan about this, about people doing like community gardens. It's kind of like the modern day equivalent. Christians, non-Christians, people getting together to plant like community gardens with food in their own neighborhoods, finding areas that are not used where people are planting food together. It builds community, it builds, brings people together, gives them a sense of doing, but most importantly, all of the food goes to people like homeless shelters. People are actually doing something. I'd love to see this happen in our group. I'd love to see us get up and do something tangible like do this. But maybe this isn't going to be our project. I don't know what it's going to be. I want you to help me explore that because we're actually looking for ways to tangibly do something And not just once, not just like, let's go do a homeless Thanksgiving dinner thing. I mean, to actually take ownership of something and do it constantly, together. But if it's not this, think of an idea and tell me what it's going to be. But there is an urgency when you know that people are going without food, that school children who can't, you know, they have to make a decision between school supplies and eating in some of the communities that are right around us. And we could do something about it. Going back to God's will and how this relates to it, James says, Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James also reminds us there's an urgency in case it isn't just an urgency of being aware of all the people around us that need us. If that urgency doesn't matter... James reminds us of another urgency. You don't know how long you have. Many of us are putting off doing things that we know we should be doing because we think, okay, I know, I've got some time. I'm going to get a couple things in order. And James says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Who are you to decide for yourself that you have that much time left? The Lord decides how much time we have. It's uncomfortable. Like in a group like this to bring up, hey, you guys better do something because you might die. Thankfully, I didn't say it. He did. But there's urgency built into the Bible in a number of places. That's why Jesus keeps coming back to reminding us that I'm going to come back when you least expect it. In the end, it's going to be like a thief in the night. All those kinds of things. He's trying to remind us, don't get comfortable. Because when we get comfortable, we don't do anything. We're comfortable just hearing the word. Feeling good that we're in the word. We're still not doing anything. In the parable of the talents, 
the master comes back, again, representing Jesus. We've covered this a couple times in here. Here are the words that kind of excerpt from the parable of the talents. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. You know, when I try to think of um, that compass that I was telling you about, I think of a scene like this in my mind. I try to imagine a conversation with Jesus that's at the very last part of my life. Like literally moments before I'm walking into the next life. And in my world, he's taking me to a really high place overlooking a beautiful scene. And you can't see them, but there's pine trees somewhere because Jesus loves pine trees. You know, that's where we all went to camp. and That's where all we made our commitment. So without pine trees, the scene isn't complete. But they're there. It's just kind of silhouetted. But there are a lot of pine trees. And in this scene, I have a conversation with Jesus that goes something like this. He turns to me and says, well, how do you think you did? And, you know, every time I have that conversation... I'm struggling with the idea that I know no matter what I say, without him even saying anything, is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Is he going to say, that's it? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever he says, whatever his next words are going to be, I know that my words are going to be something like, I think I could have done more. It's a certainty that I could have done more. It's a certainty that even if I started today and did everything I possibly could for the rest of my life to do his will, I've still wasted many, many years in my life not having done his will. Not like I was out there doing like reckless things, although sometimes I was. But I was just doing things like what I did this week. I went to work, taught some classes, talked to some people, did some legal work, worked around the house a little bit. Checked out eBay auctions. I don't know. What was I doing this week that was so important? All the things, you know, watch some TV. How do those rank on the worth scale, on the value scale of things that we had on the previous screen that I know that Christ wants me to do? Hear me on this. I'm not saying that he doesn't enjoy us enjoying our lives. I'm not saying that we have to wear hair shirts and flog ourselves like monks and walk around like... That's not what I'm saying. But let's be honest. We enjoy all those other things a little too much. And they prevent us. Even those good things prevent us from doing things that we know we should do. In that conversation with Jesus, I know that he's going to then have something to say after I'm done speaking. I know that he's the one who's going to say, now let me make account with you the way it is in the parable of the talents. The way Paul describes it in Corinthians when he tells us about how Jesus is going to evaluate the outcome of our lives and test them even as through fire, it says, to determine how we did. Paul makes it clear that our salvation is assured either way, but that doesn't mean that Jesus is not going to make account with us like he does in the parable of the talents to see how we did. So I'll have my own self-evaluation, I'm sure, as I'm thinking about it in this imaginary moment I have with him. But then I think he has his words. To me, that creates the urgency. 
that takes away the distraction. If I can once a week imagine this conversation, then like I'm in that boat, I'm riding the ship trying to figure out how to get to where I'm supposed to be. Because I do want to get to a place where I say, this is what I was able to do. And I know it's not, it's not everything. I, couldn't, I wanted to do more, but I tried so hard to at least do these things. And I think they have eternal value. And I think I believe with my whole heart that where I'm about to go, Lord, is better than this earth. And that's why I was able to just own less here and worry less here because I believe what you say that what's coming is so much better than this. And I have to remind myself that conversation every day. Because when I wake up in the morning, my desire is to own more, covet more, work harder for me, surround myself with people I like, surround myself with people who don't have problems, not fight for anyone, just, just be peaceful. Just lock the doors of my house and just live inside of it in my own little family with my wife and just be okay with just that and say, thank you, Lord, for all of this. And I should be thankful, but I think he's going to ask for a little bit more than that. So how do you do God's will? I don't have a magic formula. But these devices, I hope, will at least help you to focus on what it is that prevents us from doing it. The distraction, the lack of urgency, the lack of a desire to do it, and I think deep down inside, just a belief that this life is all we really have, so we should make the most of it, because what's coming doesn't sound so good. It sounds like a bunch of singing on clouds and stuff. It just it doesn't sound so good. And by the way, you guys know that we spent six weeks doing nothing but studying the subject of heaven, and just so that you know that I don't believe any of the topics we do are ever in a vacuum, this topic would end right here, and if you're interested in finding out what is on the other side of that last moment, and why heaven is so much better than this, you may be surprised by all the verses in the Bible that give us clues as to what's in heaven. And it's not just singing all day. There's a whole life ahead of us. There are six CDs on the website you can download if you want to that talk about that. I encourage you to do it if you're one of those people who is living for this life because you're not sure the next one sounds so good. I promise you those, that series will probably change your mind and at least give you something to hope for that's better than what's here. And that's what Jesus wanted to give us something to hope for. Can we come up with a project? Let's start the dialogue in here. This is not a one-night thing. I'm going to leave it where it is right now because I can't take it any further until we decide together that we're going to do something. But that also is a duty that we have individually to do something. That's it. Let's pray, close up. Ryan, you want to come up? Tonight, Lord, we have a simple prayer. And we dare pray it before you, knowing that its consequence may be great in our life. Lord, I pray that no matter what it takes, that you would shake us up and break us out of our denial, out of our distraction, out of our lack of any urgency about the heart that you have for the will that you gave us to do. Lord, for some of us, it's going to be dangerous to pray a prayer like that because we know you're a mighty God who will do mighty things to break us if you have to, to remake us. But Lord... It would be better that you break us and remake us now so that when we come face to face with you, we have something worthy to show for the time that you've given us on earth. We are stewards of that time. Lord, help us to focus it entirely on accomplishing your greater good. Pray this in your name. Amen.